Hello and welcome to Priority Roll, an Age of Sigmar podcast from sunny England. Join us as we discuss the ever-changing character of wargaming in the mortal realms. Grab your D6 and get ready for the Priority Roll. Hello and welcome to Priority Roll. My name is Dan and today I'm joined by JP Gannis to talk statistics. JP, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. How are you? Not at all. Welcome to the show. Yeah, I am good. good. All things considered, the world is slowly crumbling <laughs> around us. The end of civilization as we know it. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> it's been a long time coming. Uh, yes, so we are, this is the, the first episode that we are recording uh, during the, I guess, kind of periods of isolation and social distancing. Mm-hmm. So, um yeah, it's a it's a crazy crazy world out there. This isn't an episode about coronavirus, but um, if you are affected by it, then my heart goes out to you and, and you know stay strong and you know look after those around you and, and hopefully uh, you're not too badly affected. And um, if you wanna if you wanna write into us and chat to us about anything about Warhammer to kind of take the edge off things, then, then feel free to do so by the usual the usual methods of contact. But yeah, so JP, we're gonna be talking about stats today, which I love. <laughs> Evidently, because <laughs> you do them a lot. Yeah, well, I mean, what better time than when you're locked inside to just number, numbers and Warhammer? Numbers and Warhammer. I mean, like, you know, I'm definitely more of the Warhammer kind of thing. Do you know what? <laughs> I should probably caveat this. Numbers aren't really my strong point. So I'm very much a kind of words and humanities and languages kind of guy. Numbers aren't, you know, aren't stats and figures. And it's kind of, that's not how my brain works. So. You might lose me at some point <laughs> on this podcast, but I think we should bear that. You should bear that in mind when you're answering my questions. I suppose answer them for people on your level as well as people on my level. Well, I mean, I think like anything else, sort of the point of running the numbers is to then get something that is transmittable to people playing Warhammer more than it is to other sort of statisticians, if that was the word we were going to use. So hopefully most of the stuff is, is useful for everybody to hear. Excellent. I like it. So tell us about kind of the, the project. Well, in fact, tell us about yourself first, JP. Who, who is this JP person? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I've been playing Age of Sigmar since, um, I think, 2017. I've been playing up in Scotland. Uh, I sort of, the, maybe one of the reasons there's sort of, filth focus and stuff like that and my thing is when i first started playing age of sigmar i had some demons of zinch that my flatmate had left in my flat and i was like from eighth edition and i was like look these pink horrors are really cool and i hear that zinch has just gotten a new book in age of sigmar so i'll try that out and i looked in the book and i was like i don't want to play sky fires because everybody says sky fires are super filthy on the internet so i'm just going to play demons and look there's a good formation for demons i think in change host and so I brought Change Host to my first tournament, and I went, I think, 4-1. And I was like, well, obviously, that's just because I'm a naturally talented player. And I didn't play, <laughs> play for a while. And as I wasn't playing, I just saw it over and over, just people being like, so, Change Host, absolutely broken. Um, and that was sort of, so that was my, that was my start. Um, and then, so, yeah, I've been a sort of reasonably competitive Age of Sigmar player. I'm like a 4-1 player. I played in the uh, the Six Nations for Scotland twice, and I was going to be playing for Scotland this year, but uh, we'll have to see what happens with that because it's been postponed because of coronavirus. And then my less exciting day job is I work, I'm a computer programmer. I work making video games, and I also do some data analysis for game design and game balance stuff. Ah, so you've really got a pedigree in numbers and stats and analysis. Yeah, well, I, I'm sort of a hobbyist data analyst, but I've done a lot of computer programming, which has a lot of overlap in it. So. And so tell us about this stats project itself. What is it? Uh, yeah, so I think the main 
So the sort of main focus is sort of two prong, which was one, and the sort of the motivation was I was like, Scottish events are smaller. The biggest Scottish events are smaller than the biggest English events. You know, we, we looked at around 40 to 50 people as opposed to around 100 people for a lot of the big English events. And I was like, well, I want to be able to compare those two events because um, the sort of the current ranking system is uh, uh, centered around like a cap of players, say 60 players, and we never reach that. And I was like, that doesn't seem totally fair. Winning a Scottish event is difficult and sort of started working on some maths for that. And then from there, I just sort of ended up down a rabbit hole of looking at, you know, co various comparisons in the scene. I say then arrived at really the main focus of a lot of the stuff I've posted so far, which is about looking at like how much is Warhammer about how good a player you are and how much is it about how good a faction are you are you sort of picking up and bringing to events? Because there's a, there's a lot of insinuation online that it's more about the latter. It's more about the faction you're playing and the win rate that that faction has. Um, so it's really interesting to see a different take on that. You know, someone bringing into line how how different someone's results are, not just dependent on the faction, but also dependent on how, on how the faction is doing in general mm -hmm. and the difference between that. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I think one of the things that sort of uh, motivated me to get started looking at it um, was there was a fair bit of, it was after the first heat, so after the new Zinch book. So the first Zinch book, you know, had was very strong and also had mechanics and stuff like Destiny Dice and Split which sort of hadn't been seen in the game before and had some sort of feel-bad elements associated with it. And so there is, especially um, even in the Scottish scene, which is normally pretty, I think, up being positive, people being like, look, it's just, it's too hard right now to play Age of Sigmar if you're not bringing one of these top lists. And I was like, I sort of wanted to see essentially if that was true. Um, and yeah, basically the conclusion was that it's a lot more about how good of a player you are than about the faction you bring. And, you know, there's a caveat there, which is, and this is sort of going to permeate everything in, in that Age of Sigmar, we don't have a super huge amount of data compared to say like 10 million chess games or something if we're looking at a different sport. But, and also it's not completely unbiased in that good players, competitive players rather, tend to bring, um, competitive factions you know we don't have we can't say okay for the all 16 players going to the masters we're going to have them play 100 games each on each faction versus each other faction and get it out so it's not um you know there's always a pinch of salt to be taken with every set of stats but yeah the stuff we've been looking at is just and you know maybe not surprising to uh, on an intuitive level if you think about it that just some of these we've got players who for the last three years are just going to events going 5-0 with a variety of factions and so you're you're really seeing that if you're if you're if you've got a game coming up and you know your opponent is playing zinch that's a certain level of scary if you know your opponent is jack armstrong that's at least for me a higher level of scary yeah absolutely and i guess that kind of goes into um almost undermining your stats slightly in that mm -hmm. any stats about age of sigma are inherently flawed yeah and, yeah and that pinch of salt i would i would go as far as saying um uh, you know a, f a few pinches of salt if, if not more um <laughs> i haven't i haven't brought yours to the podcast just a slag of your stats don't worry um, <laughs> it's, what a twist. but but you know what i mean it's you've, you've alluded to the sample size uh you uh, one of the things that people mention as well is the, the way we talked about it before in the podcast about, about how stats are only ever a snapshot of Absolutely. data at a certain place at a certain time based on one event of 60 to you know you know 20 to 200 players so when that snapshot happens once every 
couple of months, couple of weeks, depending mm-hmm. on, on the kind of tournament schedule and in such a wide but disparate community absolutely then it doesn't necessarily equal a trend and that's something i think is really really important and which is why i you know we use the phrase meta on the podcast um to refer to kind of what's what's hot what's not and the kind of Mm -hmm. the the changing character of the game i guess Mm -hmm. yeah so we use the word meta to describe the character of warhammer and um it's hard to demonstrate a trend that isn't just a series of snapshots no absolutely and if i'm explaining myself right if that makes no no yeah of course and i think warhammer especially is a hard one because warhammer tournaments are not the same as many other competitive tournaments where everybody's going to win a lot of people go to warhammer tournaments because they're like it's either that or playing my mate phil who lives across the street 30 times a year like it's a social event where you get to play age of sigmar you know if if you play a hearthstone tournament or I assume it's the same in Magic the Gathering. You sort of know the decks that your opponents are going to bring because they're going to bring the best ones from the meta. Whereas you go to a Warhammer tournament, it's pretty rare to see a, a like a huge presence from the best armies. You know, you, there's a, normally a wide distribution. So it's all these stats are collected in a rather hostile environment for statistical relevance. So I think what that means, and you sort of got to do this with all the stats, is you've got to say, okay, knowing that I have sort of these stats and knowing that they're flawed in these ways, is there a way that they're still useful for me to inform my gameplay or my experience in some way? So I think that's what always, you know, sort of rather than focusing on, you know, achieving the revelation of some unassailable truth, it's, it's more like, okay, well, knowing that this seems to be the case, can I use that to inform what I'm going to do at my next tournament or my next 10 tournaments or how I'm going to think about how I play Warhammer and stuff like that. So I think it's important to just keep in sight what you hope is going to be useful to you more than just sticking around in the world of numbers and uh, analyzing them in a vacuum. Yes, absolutely. Or even not even analyzing them. Just just looking yeah, at, yeah, just yeah, almost exactly. using the... Because, you know, there's, yeah. there's a... There's, uh, I think I, I mentioned the phrase to you on WhatsApp of uh, data without analysis is just information, oh, yeah. not intelligence. Mm-hmm. We as wargamers are, are sometimes yeah. guilty of doing that, of, of looking at a win rate or, or a result and saying that means X unassailable truth. Yeah. And that's yeah, yeah, not yeah. that's not the case, you know, because you've also got to take into account the when you're looking at, you know, faction win rates or successes at an event, you've also got to look at the kind of people that are playing it because exactly. like let's take Seraphon for example. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, lots of events, if not all the events at the moment, are getting cancelled due to what's going yeah. on in the world at the moment. So we're probably not going to see this happen for Seraphon because by the time that the events kick back in, there'll be a whole bunch of new books. Yeah. So actually, I think Seraphon are going to be one of those factions where statistically, they're not going to have the new faction bump. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, you know, Jack Armstrong is a as you, well, you've name dropped him there as, as one of the kind of scary players that you wouldn't like to face across the, the tabletop um, from a from chances perspective. Obviously, you'd love to face Jack because he's a charming, lovely bloke. Um, <laughs> who wouldn't? But, uh, you know, Jack Armstrong has a has a large Seraphon army and he's a, he's a big fan of Seraphon. So had South Coast Grand Tournament, had Heat 2, mm-hmm. um, Bobo, what else? What else has been cancelled? You know, th- those kind of things. Had those events run and he had taken Seraphon to them, then yep. I can imagine Seraphon getting 
doing very well no, yeah, as, as well as everyone else and you know it's a powerful book and people don't people aren't used to the book and themselves and etc etc et but by the time the event's going to kick back in we're going to have probably lumineth realm lords we might have um what are the giants called sons of oh, yeah, sons of Bama, yeah yeah so so what 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 does that mean for seraphon statistically yeah. they're going to be an anomaly and so you might look at the stats and be like oh seraphon aren't doing particularly well it's like, well, that's because mm-hmm. Seraphon haven't done well. Seraphon haven't done done anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's again, it's just you got to keep all these things in in that perspective of what's useful to me. You know, so if you're for some people, and there's nothing wrong with this, if you want to sit there and be like, look, what I want to play is the safest bet for winning a tournament. That's how I'm going to pick whatever I'm buying for my isolation on uh, thing. You can you can do that, and you can say, look, okay, it's Zinch right now, um, but. If you're thinking, I like Seraphon, and I'm not sure whether to play them, then you are going to run a risk of misinforming yourself When if you're trying to look at the stats. As you say, for Seraphon specifically, it's going to be messed up because it's just not going to perform. It's not going to have the same curve that these other factions have where you know they do, as you say, often probably because people are just like, well, I've never played. I don't know what a slam does. And they maybe get the bump of that or, you know, big names picking them up. But if your question is just, can I win? Can I get a new personal best with Seraphon? The answer is almost definitely yes, because that's, you know, that's mostly going to be on how you play. And also, you know, there's obviously a, a fair whack of luck at every tournament and how you do. But yeah, keeping that, keeping that in mind, if you're like, all I care about is winning, then you can, it's an easy enough decision to pick one of these, you know, three or four armies that are doing the best. And that's, that's great. That's a great way to use those stats. But if what you're concerned about is, I don't want to just get absolutely smashed, then you can almost always pick the faction that you like and you're going to be able to do well with it. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. So what was the kind of, apart from looking to see how much player skill impacts, you know, one's ability to win games, uh, did you have any other aims behind collating and publishing these stats? Um, so I'd say tying into what I just said was, um, after initially looking at like, okay, well, how much is it the faction? How much is the player? I sort of flipped a little bit of that on its head and, and found when to look at, look at, okay, which players are really bringing their factions up? So, and that's how I came up with the, uh, with the meta breakers rankings, um, which was basically like, I think probably my overall goal was to be like, I want to inject some mathematically driven positive vibes into the scene because it just it felt like there was a little bit of doom and gloom after the new zinch book came out and that you know you can look at these stats which are often that you know top players are using the best armies and doing very well with them that sort of magnifying effect of the this is this army maybe is the best army and you see even on the win rate stuff like you're like okay the best armies have like 70 percent win rate and then the average armies you know, average good armies that people bring have like a 60% win rate. So there's only a 10% gap there. And that can already be, some of that is already accounted for the fact that it's people who are saying, okay, this army has an incremental advantage. So if I'm a competitive player, I'm going to pick it up. And that's going to widen that gap to 10%. So I was like, these, those numbers don't have to be the only thing we look at to make ourselves feel good about going and having fun in tournaments. So I wanted to injects a little bit of this positive energy. And so uh, that's why I started the MetaBreaker stuff. And I was like, look, here's a list of people. And a lot of them are in the top 16 overall for the sort of UK rankings. They're going to the Masters. They're top players. They're they're winning events. They're going 5-0 regularly. And they're not playing the best faction. You know, the rank one, we've got um, Rick Myhill, I think is still rank one in MetaBreakers at the moment. 
He's playing Mixed Chaos. He's been playing Slaves to Darkness since before they had a new book. And he's just making them work. He's just, he's a, he's taking this faction that, you know, Slaves to Darkness before their new book were nothing. You, you basically never saw them. And when you did, they tended to do poorly. But he was taking the time to write a good list. And a good list is a very different thing from sort of a quote-unquote good faction. And he was just performing. He was going regularly going 4-1 regardless of what, what faction or where his faction sort of is, should finish. And I was like, I think that's a cool thing. And it should sort of be officially officially cataloged somewhere. So I think, yeah, the sort of positive vibes is what I was going for. And, and uh, I think Metabreakers is a fun way to do it. And I got a lot of good feedback from people who are um, who are up on those rankings. who so are like, it's cool to be to be recognized as like, I'm um, um, doing almost as well with a faction that's only overall half as good. Yeah, and also it gives something for other people to aim for as well. Is you know, like a, to, on the second, you've got John Craig with Devoted of Sigma. <laughs> yeah. So, like, it gives people something to, like, do you know what, I'm going to take a really, really obscure faction, or, like, a less obscure faction, but just one that's really underperforming, like Nighthaunt, and just be yeah. like, I'm just going to go to a few events with this one army, this one faction and maybe tweak the army, but I'm yeah, going to try yeah, and do yeah. as well as possible. No, absolutely, absolutely. And you and and you see it happen, you know, like you you John Craig, he's a friend of mine, and he is a good player. And when he swapped to playing Devoted to Sigmar, he came up with a good list. You know, it was he stacked like three or four, six up saves, six up hard saves on his units of flagellants, and he, you know, used them well and people didn't exactly know what the list did, and he'd obviously, you know, played it and practiced it. And um, you know, he just he did as well as he was doing before because you know I think actually better even like some of his best results are on devoted of Sigmar you know possibly because of sort of the exhilaration of doing getting those wins with your your own TM list and it's just really cool you're just like here's a good player doing this thing and you know you can do it you definitely can do it he's actually John Craig was actually sort of what I guess one of the first meta breakers because he he told me at Bobo he was like I want to make a list with 120 flagellants and I was like. That sounds like a terrible idea from like a hobby mental health perspective. And then we were in an event and he was, um, he was, I think it was two zero after game two. And he was, I was like, look, if you go four one, I'll uh, draw a picture of you uh, winning a tournament with your devoted Sigma. And in the end, I sort of crudely photoshopped his face under a Demi Griff and printed it on a t-shirt that said the meta on it. But that was sort of the first meta breakers incident. And it's just, it's cool. And people remember that story up in Scotland. And like, I think maybe a thing that's also fun is just in Warhammer, when you win tournaments, you know, there isn't prize money. You're not getting sponsored. It's, it, there's not a lot on the line except for kudos, which is, you know, a thing to do. And you're going to get a lot more kudos coming second with Devoted to Sigmar than you are coming first with Disciples of Zinch. People People are going to remember that when Zinch wins a big event, people people are like, okay, you know, that's expected. And as someone who's played, you know, Disciples of Zinch and stuff, when you play an army like that and you, even if you go 4-1, you're like, well, I, the games I won, I knew I should have won. And the game I lost, probably should have won that as well. So, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel as good. So I think even, even from sort of the level of trying to get that positive feedback from the community that you're a good player, it's you're going to get more bang for your buck playing the faction you really like and a cool list that people haven't seen. Absolutely. And if people want to check out what we're talking about, they can just Google egg, uh, egg, uh, age, <laughs> use my words, um, age of simulator, meta breakers. If they just Google age of simulator, meta breakers, then uh, they can 
see the the kind of the three layers of stats because you've got mm-hmm. uh, all the three points on because there's ageofsimulator.com but that doesn't mm-hmm. take you necessarily straight to the no because that actually takes you to a math hammer type tool doesn't it yes um i actually really should sort out this website um but uh yeah so uh, age of sigma you know, that's that was sort of my first foray into into stats it's a it's a, a thing for simulating how much damage your units are going to do um in combat in age of sigma and uh, sort of motivation for that was a lot of the times when people are talking about the stats for damage and resilience on units people because it's easy to calculate when you're sort of back of the napkin maths is the average damage for stuff. And the issue with that is that really you're only doing the average damage half the time. So, you know, the other half of the time you're doing less, you know, which is presumably what you care about. And so I basically set up this site to give a breakdown of um, the damage at the sort of percentage chance of doing each number of wounds that you might end up be doing. So instead of just saying, okay, on average, I kill this guy's unit of skinks, you might want to know, is that the average because it happens 50% of the time? Or is that the average because, you know, it, do I do that much damage on average? Because really I do those 10 wounds 90% of the time. So it sort of offers a breakdown of the percentage chance of doing damage at each level of damage, as well as just overall, a se- you have a 70% chance, which is a bit like a safer average. Like what you know, what does that bell curve uh, really look like in terms of output potential? I'm going to do this. It's like, well, yeah, but, you know, is that because you always and consistently do that? Or is that because, you know, yeah. as you say, half the time you do that? Yeah, and it's because... Um, there's a some stain that I can't quite remember in stats about how it's it's not the average, it's the variance that'll kill you. And it's kind of you know it's kind of like on average you'll win every priority roll if you went first. Anyone who plays any war games knows that that's not true. So like if on average you know one d six, the average on one d six is three and a half. Obviously, no one has ever rolled three and a half on a d six. It's a relevant stat when you're like, okay, look, I'm rolling a charge, you know? How often am I going to make a seven-inch charge? Okay, about half the time. That's average. But if you're rolling one D6 damage to kill a hero, you don't care about the average. So it's not always, basically just not always an appropriate statistic to use. And so it's just nice having it more, more broken down here. Yeah, and actually, I mean, charge rolls is a great example because people say, well, not, you know, people deploy nine inches away and then go, well, seven is a, is average on 2D6. As if, <laughs> as if like, that's the like the minimum yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah well nine is only two inches away from seven and seven is like seven is average on 2d6 yeah but that means it only happens 50 percent of the time yeah yeah exactly. so so actually you're statistically you know you're going to fail more than half the time to get that nine inch charge yeah, but people absolutely. and i think people understand that at nine inches but at seven inches it's too easy to be like well well of course <laughs> i'm going to roll two times 3.5 yeah ex- exactly what do you mean i haven't outrageous and honestly the the big one that i see um is casting casting in age sigma is actually really hard like if you have something that casts on a seven one you're only on a 50 50 to cast it in the first place and then most of the time someone's unbinding it so a, a six to cast if you don't have any buffs is only a 50 50 to get off and it sounds like a really no number you're like all i have to do is roll above six on 2d6 and if i'm sevens are average six is easy and then the other person just rolls lower than me and even if they tie it's worse but those, those things just sort of are sort of suspiciously weak and so it's it's a thing that often you see you know new factions come out and they've got these spells but if you're not stacking bonuses to cast you know i added the corpse card to my flesh eager course list and everyone was sort of everyone was like well you can't increase your drops because that's super dangerous and it it was just basically plus one to cast took all my cast that needed a six for a 50 50 when people are unbinding 
took him to 66-33, so, you know, two-thirds instead of a half, which was, and the amount of games it, I think, just won me by getting off a key spell um, was really important. And I think that's an example there of, like, where you're, you've got an actual motivation for what you're using your stats beyond the average for. You know, you're like, okay, well, really, what, do, what does plus one to cast actually mean? You know, and I think that's just ties into what we were saying before about how are we using stats to be motivated to do stuff? Because knowing them by themselves, knowing that it sticks to cast as a 50-50, maybe that doesn't matter. If you can't add plus one to cast to your list, you sort of don't really care. You're just like, well, I'm going to roll the spell and I'm going to hope I roll it. But when you're considering, okay, well, how good is a corpse card? And you're like, okay, well, it takes me from 50% to 66%. That's actually, you know, you're like, okay, that's a pretty big increase. Or maybe you think it's a small increase and you don't want to do it. But it's at least, it's a way of informing yourself. And so how, how do you envisage people using the these stats in terms of list design? Yeah, I think, I think Age of Sigmar is sort of a reasonably solid game in terms of people tend to come up with similar strong lists books and it because armies don't have say a hundred different units in them it's normally not super important to break down the stats and be like okay um this unit does this much more damage than this unit or something like that so i'd say probably in your list design most of the time you're gonna have a good intuitive grasp without having to go into the stats i think where it comes up is when you're, for me at least, when I most often use this stuff, is when you're thinking about matchups. So you're going to a tournament and you know you're going to be playing against, you know, probably going to be playing against some Ossiarch Bone Reapers because, you know, they're everywhere. And I was thinking, I, I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll break out my old Flesh Eater Corpse because, you know, the the Gristlegore General, he's, you know, always a, always strikes first so he can go before they reroll saves and he does a lot of damage so maybe he can kill more tech guard but in my head i'm like i don't really know they're really tanky and he does a lot of damage but i don't that doesn't give me a grasp of when i get into the game am i safe to throw my crystal Gore general into a block of more tech guard and do i expect to kill them and not die and i think that's for me where it's often been useful and i mean in that specific case it depends on various debuffs sometimes you can get away with it sometimes you can't but in the end, I decided that Flesh Eater Quartz was not a good uh, army into that matchup. But I think that's where, for me, it's most useful because often it, when I was playing at the Six Nations, I went in, I was playing Crystal Gore versus uh, Fire Slayers versus Hearthguard Berserkers. And I had done the maps and I was like, look, don't send your generals, your big dragons, into the blocks of Hearthguard Berserkers because they're just not going to kill them and then die. And then I rolled my D3 attacks and I got a three. And I also gave another plus one attack from my Ghoul King. And I was like, okay, four attacks each. That sounds really big in my head. I'm going to go for it. And I went in, I killed seven Hearthguard Berserker, and then my general exploded and died. And that's the sort of thing where if I actually run the numbers on plus four attacks, I could have seen that a lot of damage was not in what a lot of damage meant in my head was nowhere near enough damage to kill that unit and still have a general or even cripple that unit. And still have a general alive afterwards. So I think that that's where it can be uh, where it can be useful when you're thinking about target selection in your games and stuff like that. If you have a, a little bit of a grasp, but doesn't doesn't need to be exact. You don't need to know it's an 86% chance of five wounds or whatever. But if you're like, okay, I know that roughly I can kill a block of more tech, or roughly I can't kill a block of more tech, that can help you play 
play better on the tabletop, I think. And so for people who might not necessarily be particularly math-minded, do you think <laughs> that math, hammer, and stats, are, are, they, are they intimidating things to new players, especially those looking at getting into the game as like a hobby gamer? And they might look at stats and be like, oh, wow, this game is all about all about the maths, and actually I just want to push some cool models around. <laughs> yeah, I think there's definitely a danger of that um, with stats in any of these things. And it's why I would always, if I, you know, if I was talking to someone, I... I think the stats always take a sort of back. Uh, are, are, you know, they're an extra little tool that can maybe help you, but they're not the game. Like I'd say most players, myself included, are learn to play the game and play most of their games even now without really a knowledge of the actual stats. You know, you charge your Grizzledore General into all sorts of things, and eventually you learn sort of the, an implicit knowledge of how good he is at fighting. And I think that's how almost everybody learn how to play. And also, because the variance... In, in a dice game like Age of Sigmar is so high, sometimes it doesn't matter. Sometimes it doesn't matter that you have a 90% chance of killing this hero. You know, we've all we've all been in combats where we were like, oh yeah, I'm just going to kill him with this unit. And then you just do zero wound. You're like, I'm hitting on twos, you roll four ones. You know, everybody's everybody's been there. So the stats, they can be helpful. They can help, like, I think, in a sort of teaching yourself about the game, you can use them and you can be like, okay, that's about how much damage this dude, that's how scary this is. Um... But it's not it's not a sort of data driven game like, you know, maybe poker is or something like that. Not that I play poker, so I hope that don't disrespect anyone, but um, where you really need to know all these odds and know all this stuff in order to compete on the tabletop. I'd say most players um, are doing it mainly based on intuition and feels. So there's a lot of stats out there at the moment. Um, some of them are used as a vehicle to deliver certain narratives, like this army is broken, look how well it's performing. Um, you know, what do you think of that overall? I think it's just what we were talking about before, in that what you've got to say is, how are these stats useful to me? So let's say the stats come out and Zinch has a 100% win rate. You know, they've never lost a game. They've played 50 games and never lost. How is that useful to me as a war gamer? It means, okay, I'm going to go into my next tournament next weekend. One, how much Zinch do I expect to face? I don't know. Maybe one. Um, is there anything I can do to my list to, to beat Zinch? And you're like, okay, I don't know. You know, maybe I can, maybe I can't. Maybe I want to think about that. If they have a 100% win rate, then there's nothing you can do about it. And it sort of doesn't really matter. It's it sort of, in, in some ways, it's just more important knowing how many people in your own local meta are going to bring Zinch. The flip side is um, maybe there is something. Maybe you're like, oh, I was thinking about adding, you know, some shooting to my list to that. Okay, can I add enough shooting to kill a Lord of Change? You know, th then maybe that informs you of that stuff. And I think sort of just having stats that say these top armies are this level of broken are not particularly helpful to you as a wargamer. It's like, you don't need to know that this army is so broken. You need to know, okay, what about this army is making it win events? Okay, it's winning events because maybe, you know, no one brings any shooting. That was sort of the case when Crystal Gore was so good. You're like, okay, Crystal Gore is really good. What makes it so good? Okay, it's, it's really good at fighting. Maybe I can bring a shooting list. But often, again, in Warhammer, a lot of this stuff is just going to be luck of the draw on the day. You know, you can go to a tournament, you can face, you know, not a single S-tier army in your five games. And you can be like, well, there was no point worrying about how good Zinch was. You can also do sort of the, what Ben Savage did. He won play versus three changers and beat two of them with bone splitters who aren't even an army ranked, you know, anywhere in the S-tier list of armies. And so I think, again... You just want to make sure that when you're sort of ingesting these statistics, you're ingesting, you're taking them in in a way that's informing you so that you're going to have a better time, win more games, 
whatever at events. So you want to say, okay, and this is what I was sort of trying to do, is the faction brings this level of power to a player at a tournament. But really what's bringing the main amount of power is how good that player is in the game. And there are loads of stories like that Ben Sava one of you know player X on a weak faction beats player Y on a really strong faction. And that's because they're a really good player. And I know for me personally, I am more scared of players than I am of factions. You know, we touched on the Jack Armstrong thing before, but if I was like, okay, I'm playing against someone who's bringing Zinch, I'm not going to be like, oh, well, I can't, I can't win versus Zinch. I'm going to be like, I'm, 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 I've won a lot of games versus a lot of factions in my past. I'm going to get to the table. I'm going to see what battle plan it is, and maybe I roll all sixes and I just win the game for free. You know, it's it's a dice based game and a skill based game, and both those things together contribute to more sort of again in my analysis contribute to way more than what faction are people playing so unless you think that reading about sort of the win rates of the various factions is going to help inform you make a decision again if you're like i want to pick a faction for my next tournament and i really want to win then those are great you know whatever you look at the best faction is zinch you play zinch and then that's a great way to use it to inform but if you're not doing that then um I don't think it's necessarily super like super useful to you to know that that's the case. So what you what other useful kind of conclusions have you drawn from the stats that you've collected? Yeah, well, I I think the biggest one we've obviously talked about which is just that like the better you play, the better you're going to do. I think that's important and I think sort of hidden in that though I don't have the stats for it is um going to be about list building rather than faction. So when you when you know when you see a player like you know devoted a sigma or John Craig on devoted a sigma um, get, uh, Rick Myhill on his Slave to Darkness. Like these aren't players just playing the same list that everybody else on their faction is playing. They're also, you know, really taking this faction they want to play, reading through the book in depth, and breaking out a, you know, the 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 strongest build that they can find in there. And um, I think if you're like, okay, look, I always play, you know, Night Haunt, which is an army I played, and I'm struggling to to win events with it. You can before you feel like oh I have to drop Nighthawk because they're a weak faction. That's not to say they're not a weak faction because they are weaker in terms of their rule set than a lot of other ones out there. But before you go ahead and say okay I want to throw away my Nighthawk even though I love the models, you can say okay well what list changes could I make to adapt to the types of game I lose? Because I think a big advantage you're going to have as a player who's been playing Nighthawk for a while is you will you have that experience. You can say okay I played. 10 games, and the games I lose, I tend to lose like this. And I think that's probably, if I was going to give some sort of subjective advice, is, is to sort of try and remember in your brain why you're losing and why you're winning the games that you win and lose. Because if you are going to stick with a faction and you're going to try and learn it over time, that's one of the things that's going to give you a big advantage. Is your, so I played a lot of Legion of Grief. Um, and uh, I think it's maybe the faction that I did best with, despite being not sort of quote-unquote meta but a, a big thing i found with that over time is i was like okay the way i'm winning games is i have a lot more units that are threats than my opponent does you know that's just sort of the nature of the army and they're just sort of running around and regenerating and i was like okay for my next tournament when i play these in the grief how can i change my list to sort of double down on that strength and that was an insight that i got only because i was playing a faction that not many other people played that uh, i had m- sort of multiple events of experience on which w- doesn't really happen as much if you're just playing again this is from my own personal experience of playing these i mean if you're playing a top tier army where everybody knows the best list everybody sort of got practice against your list you've got you know everybody knows what it does you know what it does you bring the list that everybody's playing and you just sort of do the thing that your army does and 
I find that to be sort of, it feels worse when you lose. It doesn't feel as good when you win. So I would say that you really just want to focus on improving your gameplay. Yeah, and everyone everyone's expecting you to do the thing and everyone knows exactly. the thing that it does. And everyone's exactly. also probably mentally prepared for that thing mm-hmm. to happen. So yes. when you deploy your Daughters of Cain, mm-hmm. the list that most people take, it does a certain thing. It does a certain thing very well, um, but yeah. people, people know what it does. Whereas exactly. if you take a different sub-faction, mm-hmm. you, know, you might still take Daughters of Cain, but you take yeah. you know, a Temple Nest or... Mm-hmm. Um, or or Kraith or something, you know, you just take something a bit quirky, then that puts your opponent mentally on a bit of a back foot while they're like, ah, okay, this isn't going to do the thing that I... I, you know, in my head, I saw that I was up against Daughter of the Cain and I probably statistically decided Mm -hmm. I'm probably going to be facing X. And they get to the table and they're not facing X and they're thinking, ah, okay, right, okay. Then they're almost trying to have to do that kind of a threat analysis on the fly, which is using up their mental energy to worry about that. Yeah, they're more likely to do it wrong. Exactly. So yeah, you sort of you get to leverage that experience gap because so again, when I turn up on the table with my Legion of Grief and my Black Coach, I'm like, I have 15 event games experience with the Black Coach. You have zero event games playing against it, and it might not be that good. But for me, I know what it does. I'm like, okay, it can go over, and it can probably fight five direwolves, and that's probably what I'm going to use it for. But they've got to look at it. You know, it's a big model. It's fast. It's zooming around. They've got to look at it and be like. What's it going to do? You know, like you just by playing your own list, by playing your own fraction, you that that experience gap, the amount of times you've played the matchup is or similar matchups is going to be much higher than your opponent. As you say, your opponent might be like, oh, I've actually played 10 games versus Hagnar. So I've got a bit of experience, but they might have played zero games against your list or a list like zero games against a list like your list. And you suddenly you you. You know they're out of their comfort zone, and their experience is just way less than yours. Yeah, that's really interesting, and not only that, it's also making me want to uh, to play Nighthorn. <laughs> well, there. So this this ties into uh, always taking your stats with uh, a pinch of salt. I was looking at some list data, and I was like, okay, what unit? I was basically like, find units that are rarely picked per faction, and see when they're picked in these sort of unicorn lists, which one has the biggest impact on increasing your sort of the list win rate compared to other people playing the same faction. Okay. And I mean, the actual answer is I did not have enough data to make any sensible conclusions, but the top answer that I got was adding not the first, but the second black coach to your night. <laughs> list. I was out of all, I think like in fourth was adding a third unit of more Sargard to your Deepkin list, which is much less fun. But yeah, the first one was take your night haunt list add a second black coach. It's because there's just some guy somewhere who was just massively outperforming other Nighthawk lists as well as bringing two black coaches. And so, yeah, just get, get a second black coach. Be like that there guy. Live go. your best life. Be that, live, live your best life and run your dual black coach list. You heard it here first on Priority <laughs> Roll from JP. Double black coach is the new meta. <laughs> I see it. I see it. <laughs> I can't see that happening. But, you know, I'm ready to be surprised and, and pleasantly <laughs> astonished. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, JP, thank you. On that on that absolute bombshell of list advice, uh, before we start designing uh, triple Black Coach Night Haunt lists between us, um, let's leave it there. Unless you've got... Have you got any shout-outs or anything like that, like local clubs or Twitter handles? Of course, mention your Twitter handle, of course, and uh, age of simulator.com yeah i must admit i thought that was a fun pun but every time i've had to say it out loud it's a disaster um, <laughs> yeah so i'm on twitter at jp ganis g-a-n-i-s um i'll give a shout out to uh, northern invasion and 
uh, they're a Scottish podcast. It's a good laugh. Some friends of mine and just the Scottish scene in general, just a uh, super friendly bunch of guys and uh, put up with me both in my black coach and the much filthier armies that I've brought to the tables up there. Awesome. So we will finish off with the two questions that we ask everyone on every single episode. Mm-hmm. And those are, if you could protect one thing about Age of Sigma and never have it change, what would that be? And if you could only change one thing about Age of Sigma and the rest of the game would never change, what would that be? So for the first one, one thing to never change, um, I think this maybe is less controversial than it used to be, but I keep the uh, the priority role. Oh, you can't say that. You <laughs> it's it's been said too many it's times. It's been said too many times, yeah. Oh, no. Um, okay, I'm going to answer the second question first and then try and think of a new answer for the first question. So if I could change one thing, um, I think my, my sort of first thought was something to do with how first turn is chosen, but that's said a lot and there are a bunch of different solutions. I think I'd get rid of... Uh, stacking points on battle plans um, because so like on on three places of arcane power where you get uh, points equal to the number of turns you've held it because I think that just uh, doubles down on the negative aspects of the priority role where a priority can be the difference between scoring you know 12 points for the battle plan and scoring zero and I think those swings are too big and they'd be much more manageable if you were only scoring, you know, one one point per turn or, or a much smaller stacking, like one point if you just took it and two points if you've already held it. So if there's one thing I could change, it would be to uh, to get rid of those battle plans where you score a stacking. Um, I suppose the a counter to that would be if you only st- score incremental, uh, you know, one or two, whatever, per, per turn, then all you need to do is get up one early and then maintain the status quo, and then you've won. Sure, but that's that's already the case with stacking points. Like, if on places of arcane power, it depends exactly how the stacking works, but in places of arcane power, if you get on it early and you hold it for the first two turns, you're denying your opponent 15 points off that first round of scoring. And so as long as you score them for a couple turns by going first, your opponent can never catch up because of the stacking. There are some battle plans like Star Strike where the amount of points for the objectives goes up, and that's maybe more like what you're saying in that it allows you to catch up late game rather than early game. Um, so maybe maybe just some some tuning of that so that battle plans were not so dependent and try to out. I'd also like to extend it to the instant win battle plans. Make battle plans less dependent on priority roles influencing the immediate and mathematical end of the game. That's a terrible answer. It's way too long. No, no, no. That's it's really interesting because no one's used that example before. So it's really good to to kind of hear different perspectives. Um, okay, so I gotta now think of something. What what would something that I could protect and never change? Yeah. So Age of Sigma version three is coming out, and they're yep. rewriting the game from the from the ground up. What's the one um, thing you'd want to protect? One thing I want, and I'm not allowed to pick the priority role, even though we all love it. Um. I think one thing I'd like to to protect is um, keeping the rule set simple and readable on War Scroll cards. So I know there's a lot of people talk about adding like keywords, and which would sort of disambiguate some of the rules debates that happen. But for me, 99.9% of the rules debates I have are in WhatsApp chats, not at tabletops. I go to tournaments. The game plays out really really smoothly. Very rarely a rules debate, and if there is, it's like a one quick question to a TO who's like, I think it's this, whether that's right or wrong, the game goes on. And I think that it's really good that when a new book comes out, you know, even if you don't play the faction, you can look at like the War Scroll cards and you'd be like, oh, that's really cool. I see how that works without, you know, often I look at 40k rules and I'm like, I want to look at this scroll for this new character who came out. And I can see some of the cool rules, but then it's got a bunch of keywords that I don't understand, which 
isn't a bad thing. There are obviously pros to that, which allow the rules maybe to be more consistent or give extra depth, sort of strategic depth. But I really enjoy in Age of Sigma that it's sort of anyone can pick it up and it's a simple rule set that plays out in a complex way on the tabletop rather than a complicated rule set that you have to sort of, it's more more remembering work than sort of strategic model moving and stuff like that. So yeah, that's that's what I keep. Keep the, keep the rules simple and stay away from uh, the, the rules bloat and the keywords and other things like that. Awesome. Excellent answer. JP, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to throw some dice and play a game together in the, uh, in the future. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Thank you for having me. Take care, mate. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Priority Roll. If you want to get in touch with us, we're at Priority Roll on both Twitter and Instagram. You can send us an email, priorityrollpodcast at gmail.com, or you can go to anchor.fm forward slash priority roll and leave us a voice message. If you want to leave us some feedback, we're always looking to improve, or if you just want to suggest a topic to talk about on one of our upcoming shows, then feel free to get in contact with us. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, thanks for listening to Priority Roll. Priority Roll.